Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We, sh we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in the truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to, to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. 
even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is a savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. So a couple weeks back, this photo right here uh, graced the opinion columns of the New York Times. Now, I don't know if you are ones to uh, read the New York Times, but um, there you have it. Th does this picture look familiar? If, if you're not really familiar with the reference, this is about a, um, a month ago, a, a fresh outpouring of God's spirit kind of graced this small college town in Wilmore, Kentucky. This is at Asbury University. And this is what uh, the New York Times called Woodstock for Christians. Okay. And what struck me about this photo was not really the content of the image. I mean, here you have... Um, kind of a lo-fi vibes going on and people like a, a, an auditorium full. It's not necessarily the content of the photo, but it's the explanation. Woodstock for Christians. Revival draws thousands to Kentucky town. I mean, how disconnected do you have to be from the biblical imagination that when God's presence rests on a people in a place, eventually drawing thousands, that the only cultural image that you can draw on is like Woodstock. The short answer is you have to be very disconnected from the biblical imagination. And despite the New York Times hosting writers like Esau Macaulay and Tish Harrison Warren and David French, all who are Orthodox Christians, there seems to be a genuine confusion about the people of God gathering in the name of God, not to get something from God, but to simply find their deepest longings met in God. And this confusion fits with a popular myth that I really think is up and running in our city. I could, I could be wrong about that, but the myth goes something like this, that Sundays are a Bible-flavored group therapy session meant to ease a tender's conscience. So under this myth, you are all here to have your conscience eased by Jesus. Meanwhile, everywhere else, uh, all the sensible people are enjoying life. They're watching sports. As you can see right over there across Locust, March Madness is coming. Uh, you are either with joy and agile, like you're, you're adoring or you're like grief stricken by the prospect of March Madness. I'm saying that because it like touches down, you know, Michigan State's out in the Big Ten turn. I'm like, oh no. Somehow the rest of the people, all the sensible people are watching sports, volunteering, they're relaxing before the upcoming work week, or maybe they're like tapping into bottomless mimosas. And if mimosas are your thing, like bless you, it tastes like rotten OJ, but I guess that's, that's whatever. Uh, to be clear, these particular practices, sports, self-care, brunch, these are neutral realities. What's noteworthy about all of this is the disconnect 
the disconnect between what some would just call the secular and the sacred or private and public life. The notion that we can divide life into, this, into these various spheres, like there's one sphere over here called the sacred where my devotion to God can exist, and then another sphere over in this space where all the rest of life takes place called the secular. The, the, the notion that that actually takes place is fundamentally disintegrating. Like it's, it's pushing our lives in different directions. The poet of Ecclesiastes has this haunting line that goes like this, that God has set eternity in the human heart. You just think about that for a moment. Eternity has been set in the human heart. The heart in the biblical imagination is the seat or the place of your mind and your will and your intellect. And there... Nested in that, the center of who you are, there's like this seed of eternity. At the core of who you are resides a restless longing for more. You could say it this way, it's like we are haunted by eternity. And so, I, I think this plays out. We see it around us, in us. It's like... Um, you go to this party or this protest, you dine at that restaurant, you sculpt your body, you have another sexual encounter, you take in another coastal vista, and most of it you post on the internet so others can affirm it or else it never really happened. And then we still have that eternal ache. There still is this longing for more. This is what the, the late novelist David Foster Wallace simply called worship. And it seems as though he named our modern wanderlust what it truly is. In this commencement speech at Kenyon College from almost 20 years ago, I, I get, I, my guess is you've heard a preacher use this because it is so potent. And so here we go again. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Perhaps that's why the New York Times struggles to like plot the outpouring of God's presence, because to do so would require reckoning with that eternal ache, naming it as an eternal ache. My guess is that you're not surprised to hear that worship is not an exclusively religious enterprise, because worship is part and parcel, hand and glove with what it means to be human. And if you've grown up in and around the church, then you probably have a very particular understanding of what I'm talking about when I'm talking about worship. But we would do well to maybe expand the horizon of what worship is here in our minds this morning because to be human is to be a worshiper. Um, pastor and author John Tyson describes worship like this. It is all about aligning our passion, vision, values, attention, energy, and capacities toward that which matters most. So I think we would do well to strip away any cliche notion that worship is about singing songs on a Sunday. I do think that's a part of it, but if you are like, I don't know, introverted and you don't feel like drawn near to God's presence in a crowd, then public worship is draining, not filling. See, worship is much more, it's, it's richer. And significant though what we just did is, it is but a part of how we point our lives to that which matters most. Everyone worships. If you follow someone's devotion, what you will find is their worship. And if you follow their worship, then you will see what they love. 
Again, you can just behold the joy and grief in stadiums as teams win and lose. You can, there you will find worshipers. You could go to an office park late into the evening and find cars littered about and lights still on in the building, and there you will find worshipers. You go pretty much anywhere, anytime, any place, and you will find worshipers who are pointing their lives at a given thing. Now, let me, let me just say here, there's, it's easy, this isn't my notes, so sorry for taking an extra couple minutes. It's easy in Christian spaces for us to go, only do the Jesus stuff. Like, and we've, we buy into that same dichotomy that there's the secular and the sacred, but what if everything has sacred potential? Like, what if the spreadsheet you work on, what if the scheduling of employees, what if, like, your hand with a scalpel, what if everything you do, what if the, like, those annoying phone calls you get, the person on the other line who is the telemarker, what if that has sacred potential? Because it's all spiritual. Because we're all worshiping. We're all pointing our lives at that which matters most. And I love how this pastor and New Testament scholar, Daryl Johnson, he unpacks this. He says it this way. I thought this made me laugh, and I don't know if it will for you, but I have a weird sense of humor. Dogs bark. Fish swim. Horses gallop. Birds fly. And humans worship. That's why we are the creature always seeking, always seeking something bigger than ourselves. I have no idea why that made me laugh. I I, I don't know. Maybe it was the dogs barking, human worshiping. I don't. But like, just suppose you agree with me thus far. They're like, okay, I, I, I grant you. We point our lives at stuff. And yes, I grant you can call that worship if you want. But what happens if the things that we value the most are then taken away from us? What if they actually can't fulfill us? Whether that be a, a job or a relationship. Maybe it's, like, maybe you've seen this. The person whose body no longer does what they hope it will do, and that they did before, like, that generated their life and their income and their relationships, but now they, like, sit as a shell of themselves. What happens if the things that matter most to us cannot satisfy our deepest longings? Well, again, your boy Wallace here from a few lines down in that commencement speech, he says this, if you worship money and things... If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. These things will eat you alive. So welcome to church. Just here to encourage you this morning as uh, the Father is seeking worshipers in spirit and truth. There we go. See, Wallace might as well be preaching our text. Just, just hear Jesus' words again in verse 13. Jesus says this in response to the Samaritan woman. Everyone who drinks this water, talking about Jacob's well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. By the way, Jesus doesn't have like water on tap. He's talking about something different. He's using a physical reality to talk about something larger. And he says this, indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus at a well of all places offers to quench that eternal thirst. He offers to quench your eternal thirst and to do so with himself. Now perhaps that sounds kind of odd. I just gave you the main point of the teaching. Now we're gonna kind of back our way into this bad boy. How's that sound? 
Okay, yeah. See, first, do you know the lengths to which the Creator God will go? Do, do you know the lengths to which the Creator God will go to seek worshipers? Well, this is what John wants to show us today. So I'm going to set the scene and we're going to work our way through bit by bit. Verse 4, we read this. Now he had to go through Samaria. Just take a look at this map with me. Just south of here, you're going to have Jerusalem right in here in Judea, here in the surrounding regions. Um, you actually like, don't have to go through Samaria. It is the most direct route, but John's language here, it's so interesting because what was custom for Jews, especially Jewish rabbis, was to avoid this region. Just as the Samaritans were then, they are still today an ethno-religious group in the land. They're in what is known as the West Bank, a contested space in Palestine. And to put it lightly, the Samaritans and Judean Jews, they had some beef it would be like Protestants among Catholics in Northern Ireland or African Americans in the South, either a hundred years ago or today in some spaces, I suppose. There was a deep and enduring divide. And really, this reaches all the way back to the Babylonian captivity. This is 586 BCE when the Judeans were displaced and they were scattered throughout the ancient Near East. This is a pretty common practice as a, like a social, political, and military strategy. What you would do is you would take the people who are the native inhabitants and you would scatter them, and then you would bring other people in to intermarry so that you would literally dissolve any ethnic heritage. Everyone would be a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You would dismantle them as a people group. But for those who remained in the land, specifically this little region, there developed this similar but competing ethnic and religious identity to the Israelites. And in keeping with their name, Samaritans is instructive. A Samaritan is, literally means watchers or keepers of the law. They were more like a rival sibling than a, like a foreign enemy. And as an ethnic group, they fully rejected the writings and the prophetic tradition that developed in exile. So what you get is when the people of Israel are, are scattered and they go into Babylon, it's there that they go, how can we remain faithful? The, the book of Daniel, anybody? Your, your boys Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, yeah? Those guys are, are asking the question, how do we remain faithful to Yahweh, our covenant God, while we're here in exile? What does it look like when we're in this contested space to remain faithful to God? And so this prophetic tradition raises up. You get the Psalms that raise up in that space. You get all of these songs, and these are all rejected by the Samaritans. They're like, no, 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 we're sticking with the Torah. The first five books, that's where God's wisdom and revelation has come to us. In fact, they have this creed marked by four realities. It was one God, one prophet, one book, one place. To say there was tension between the Samaritans and the Jews is a little bit of an understatement. And so there, there's even accounts where the Samaritans on the Jewish Passover, they would go into their temple and scatter bones, like human bones, as to say your religious practices only bring death. So naturally, when a Jew was traveling north to get up to the Galilee, the region where Jesus is going to be doing most of his ministry, they are going to go around Samaria. But Jesus, according to John, he must go through. Because of 
apparently something like worship is on the line. And it's there that he encounters a woman and this conversation ensues. In verse 5, we read this. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground, Jacob had given his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. We'll just pause right there for a moment. Um, John is packing so much in here. Like this, is, this passage is just dripping. And so for the sake of time, we will not. But if, um, if you want to like make a note, just go and study wells. Like what, what happens at a well? Who, do, who gets met at a well? Specifically your boy Moses. When he kills a dude and then flees into the wilderness, who does he meet at a well? What takes, like all of these imageries of rescue and restoration and specifically of marriage happen around wells. It's curious the details that John gives us here. Verse 7, not a surprise then, a woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And it may not jump off the page to, to you or even like to me on first blush, but if, if you are one of the first listeners hearing John's gospel in the first century, you might now be holding your breath. Because right at this moment, Jesus has gone beyond transgressing the ethnic barrier, and now he's pushing up against every conceivable cultural barrier to a Jew. And even the woman is surprised. Just listen to her response in verse 9. We read this, Samaritan woman asked, said to him, said to Jesus, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman, how can you ask me for a drink? And just to get a sense of how misguided Jesus' request must have felt, here's some conventional wisdom of the day. This comes from the Mishnah vote. He that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law and at last will inherit Gehenna. Okay? If that's a bit on the nose for you, here's just uh, like a saying that would be said by most Jewish men in the morning. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Uh, do you see what's happening here? How can you ask me for a drink? Like we're not even 10 verses in and the lengths to which the living God will go to show and like to draw worshipers to himself, it begins to boggle the imagination. There's no category for what Jesus is doing because there is no distance, no stigma, no shame, no social economic distance, no religious or gender or any kind of barrier that God will not pass, that God will not move through to draw the heart of true worshipers. And what do we see? Like in the face of all of these cultural barriers, Jesus moves toward the woman and he does so with an extraordinary invitation. So just consider this scene again. Jesus asks for a drink. The woman responds, how could you do that? And then we get this in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God, that little, that little phrase, the gift of God, is a little Jewish idiom for the law. If you knew the Torah, if you knew and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself and also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to Jesus, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And just pause right there for a moment. It's generally at this point that you will hear preachers start talking about the content of the woman's moral character or uh, what's happening in this interplay that she may not really understand what's going on, but that then Jesus is going to do this. Uh, again, I, I can't really ring all this out for what it's worth. I don't think this woman is an immoral character. I think there's a lot more going on. Um, in fact, if you wanna to listen to something really curious about this, there's this thing called the Bayma podcast. This is not an original to me, but this guy, Marty Solomon, he's like a rabbi type guy. And he thinks that this woman is a Samaritan priestess. And so all of her knowledge about Torah, all her knowledge about Jacob, all these things is rooted in her religious identity. That was just, you know, for your fun exploration. Back to the teaching. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you have had five husbands, and you may now, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. When you read these passages in the Gospels, do you just go like, what, in, what is happening here? Why am I reading the Bible today? <laughs> like, this is such a weird text. Does Jesus have some sort of like God goggles on and he's peering into her soul? What's happening? The um, scholars love to argue about what's happening here. At the end of the day, they all say, we don't know what's going on. And so can we just see what Jesus is doing? That Jesus is making an extraordinary offer. It's nested right there at the beginning. I will give you living water. And for those with ears to hear, when they hear Jesus offer living water, they know that he's drawing on this great prophetic tradition, specifically the prophet Jeremiah, who laments, the, like this, the, drawing on God's word. Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 2.13, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Like here, the forsaken God has come in the flesh to a well of all places to draw on the imagery that he's given the people. He's saying the living water is here. And the, and the same God who makes this claim in Ezekiel 36 that I will sprinkle clean water on you and, I, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities. This God is offering to this woman living water that apparently is going to well up from within her. And to that invitation, the woman says, yes. Again, scholars love to argue about whether or not this woman has any idea what Jesus is talking about. 
And therefore, he has to like appeal to her like dubious moral character and call it into question and bring those things to light. But I've kind of laid my hand out there. I think this is a leap. I, in fact, I think it feels unnecessary because there's nothing in the passage to indicate that this is an immoral woman. It's altogether plausible that the multiple marriages are because of multiple deaths or that this woman is caught in a social cycle that favors men. There's this thing called for any reason divorce, for any and every reason. The cooking's not good. She doesn't look as wholesome as you want her to. You can issue her a divorce. But in that context, the woman would not really have the social license to issue a divorce. And so she very well could be caught in this lopsided like, social cycle of divorce and remarriage in a male-dominated culture. And in turn, Jesus isn't like, gently chastising her moral failure. He's including her. Like he, and he's already extended the invitation before he even gets to the whole marriage bit. And so to my mind, Jesus is doing this, and this is what like, needs to come before us, is that Jesus is in, like, he's talking about the implications of worship. And we see this when we pick back up in verse 19. She perceives, like, oh, I see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worship on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. See, again, the Samaritans, they've, re like, they've rejected the prophetic tradition. So what prophet is she talking about? Well, she's talking about the prophet, the great prophet who would come after Moses, the one true one who would represent God to the people. So in so some way, she's able to perceive that this Jesus, this man, this strange Jew tired at a well is more than just a weary traveler, but there is something like the living God active and animating him. And so she turns to worship, the, the decisive place. And Jesus responds in verse 21, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jew. And, and then hear this. Yet a time is coming and now and has now come. And has now come. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman, she steps in again. I, I know that Messiah, called Christ, I know Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to her, or to us. And then Jesus makes this declaration, I, the one speaking to you, I am. Jesus is saying, direct your longings at the mountain over there and you will thirst again. Direct your longings at the mountain in Jerusalem and you will thirst again. Direct your longings anywhere but me and you will thirst again. But if you, with your deepest longings in hand, reach into the invitation I am offering, you will not come up wanting. In verse 26, Jesus makes the declaration that the one speaking to you, ego me. Multiple times through the gospel according to John, 
Jesus will make this declaration and he'll have other things that he'll say. He'll say, I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He'll attach some significance to this declaration. And yet here, in response to her, she says, I know that the Messiah, God's anointed one, the one who will usher in God's blessing and peace here on earth as it is in heaven, that he is coming and he'll explain everything. And Jesus is saying, it's me. Now, my guess is you've heard this before. And so you're not like falling over, but God has come in the flesh. And here he is at a well, making known himself to this woman who was on the outside and inviting her in to the eternal community of love. The, and, and let me just say this. See, the, the church, like Gateway, is not seeking after your heart. Christianity is not seeking after your heart. Like a narrow strain of evangelicalism that affirms women in leadership or this other doctrinal piece, that is not seeking after your heart. No, it is the living God, the great I am. Jesus is seeking the heart of worshipers. See, the whole reason that we come and we gather here in the name of Jesus is so that we might actually come to Jesus because God has come to us in Christ. Somehow, like the church becomes a thin space in our time and place where God is willing to come and meet with his church. Because there is no distance, there is no stigma, there is no shame that God will not go to seek out your heart. And while the disciples are confused about all of this, like, Jesus, hold on, like, why are you talking to her? And did someone give you food? But what's going on? This woman, she is undone. Like, look down to verse 28. Leaving her, then leaving her water jaw, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of, the, out of the town and they made their way toward Jesus. And, and then we read this, jumping down to 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. And here's her testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Now, we love a good testimony. We love, we love the testimony that says, I was once this. I was once gripped by addiction. I was once caught up in this. I was once over here, but now in Christ I am here. I was dead, but now I'm alive. And all of that is good and true and beautiful, but so often the inflection is placed over here. But this woman just simply says, he told me everything I did. And apparently that testimony draws the whole town. So verse 40, when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay. And because of his words, many more became believers. And then they turn to the woman in verse 42, and they say, we no longer just believe because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. I don't, I, I don't know if I'm doing like a, a really bad job at getting across what's going on here. Jesus starts out as a dude at a well and ends as the Savior of the world. 
Hold on a second. Let me, he goes from dude at a well to you to sir to prophet to savior of the world. Somehow, when you encounter the living Christ in the midst of the place that you think is normal and mundane and frustrating, all that can happen is you are undone and then the declaration is made, surely this is the savior of the world. So I don't know who we've been encountering all along. But the worship, the worship that is in spirit and truth, it starts to draw us to the sobering reality that God revealed in Jesus now present to us in the spirit is indeed the one who would be lifted up so that when he is lifted up, he will draw all men, all people to himself to declare he, Jesus, is the savior of the world. By the way, do you remember what the world is in the gospel according to John? The world is the systems and people and operations that are opposed to God. God has come in Christ to be lifted up. And where is he lifted up? He's lifted up on a cross, a Roman execution rack. It is in death that God makes a way to life so that all who are opposed to him would actually have a way to live. Did you ever ask yourself why? Like that seems like a lot. God, eternal community of love, Jesus, considered it nothing. Puts on flesh, lives in utter obscurity for 30-ish years, and then comes on the scene to be crucified, abandoned, and then, and then resurrection life. Like, what is going on? Why? Like, why is it that John, through the lips, like Jesus will say here, the Father is seeking, which that word is like he is right now continually seeking. He is never not seeking. The Father is seeking worshipers who will worship in spirit and truth. Why? Like, is God lonely? Is God some sort of like self-obsessed divine narcissist who is just going to point all of the cosmos to get all of the, like, no. A thousand times no. No. The Father is seeking for his namesake. See, in Exodus, we meet the one God. We meet the God who hears the cries of the afflicted and turns toward. And when God hears the cries of the people and turns toward, he calls on Moses. You know the guy who killed the person and then went out to the well? Yeah, he calls that guy. And he calls them to help release the people so they might what? Go out into the wilderness and worship the one true God. That's actually what like initiates the throwdown with all the Egyptian gods is that God just wants the people to be able to be released into the wilderness to worship. When Moses is like, hold on a second, there's actually a God like this? I gotta tell him, who, who is it that's, that's sending? And God, was, he, God says, ehweh. He's like, hold on a second. Like, how do you translate that? Because I don't, I don't, I can't just go up and shout. Like, I, I am who I no. Like, so then he gives him this name, Yahweh. When they ask who is initiating this release, Yahweh. When Moses comes to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's like, I've never heard of this God. No, you cannot be released. That is God's covenant name. And it's not like, like I am who I am. It's not this philosophical notion of God like contemplating God's self. No, get off me. It is a relational reality. It is I am with you. I am for you. This is God's covenant name. All that I am, I place before you. All of my power and mercy and creativity, all of my love, I willingly bind myself to you. 
And I know your character, I know your heart, I know it's fragile, I know it's sick with sin, so I will bind myself to you by my own name. Because I also know my character and my, the contents of my heart. And when the people of Israel sure enough turn their back on God in the desert, Moses does what? I don't know if you remember this story. Moses calls God to consider God's name. And he says, what are the Egyptians going to think? And so God relents. He remains with the people for his namesake. Why is the father seeking for his namesake? The psalmist in Psalm 25 appeals to God in the face of their sin, saying, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Or again, in Psalm 23, the psalmist banks on the Lord's name. And we know this, but I don't know if you've heard this recently. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Just go through that. He is my shepherd, I shall not want. All of our longings, all of those false wells, if you will, God leads us up away from those. He makes us lie down in places of plenty with what? Still waters. In a place of restoration, he leads me in right paths for his namesake. Or in the face of yet another abandonment, a national abandonment. Samuel, the, the prophet, says this, For the Lord will not cast away his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased Yahweh to make a people for himself. So those who have been cast aside, those who've been rejected, those who've been dejected, God in Christ says he must go to them. He has to go through Samaria. He has to go to the places that in religious spaces are unwholesome, that, that the religious spaces call unclean. God says he has to go there. And in this text, Jesus says this surprising thing when he turns from verses 15 to verse 16. He says, go and get your husband. It's this thing that somehow when it like steps in, like when Jesus, when those words come to this woman, it kind of undoes her in a sense and she turns to worship. And so the question ought to be to us, like what is Jesus calling us to go and get? What is Jesus essentially saying? Like, what is the well that you're tapping into? What is the thing that lies before you? Where do I need to lead you away from so that you might go to the place of plenty? Where do you need restoration? See, this is what worship is itself about. It is, it is that we might turn all of ourselves toward that which matters most so that we might be filled in kind. See, to come to God is to come to the one who can actually restore us. To come to God in Christ is to then become the type of people who actively receive and participate in the life of God. You can, in fact, think about the whole Christian life as the journey toward union with God. This doesn't show up a lot in, in the West, but if you roll over to the Eastern Orthodox Church, that's the whole thing, union with God in Christ. You, I mean, it, I don't know how 
the categories are frustrating because I'm, I'm here talking about the eternal community of love, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who's come in the flesh in Jesus, like literally the flesh, has come, made himself known in the places that he ought not be. He's come to the places of shame and isolation, and then he's allowed those things like to fully exhaust themselves in himself. He dies to sin, Satan, death, and hell, to be raised in the power of God. This is who Jesus is. He comes to us so that we we might be fully satisfied. He comes to all the things that exhaust us so that we might find true rest. This is what worship is, the pointing of the whole of your life. So that when you are dealing with the kids that like are going to, I don't know, spit at you and yell at you and cuss at you and make you sick, like when you're dealing with all of the people in your life that you struggle to deal with, that is the place where spirit is needed to offer up the truth of worship to say that God is in this, that God, no, 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 the God who is with me and for me, he has restoring me. These are the places of plenty because God is with me. See, worship isn't just an invitation that Jesus extends. It's not just an invitation to love and joy and peace. It is that. But worship is also a confrontation because worship begins to confront all the places that we turn to be filled apart from Jesus. See, it's easy to teach on worship. What's difficult to say is that God is actually calling us to allegiance. That there are places in our lives that God wants to tear out from the roots because they are leeching life from us. They are sucking life from us and God wants to release us from their captivity so we might be truly filled to the brim with his presence so that we might give away the life we have for the good of others. Worship isn't just an invitation, it's a confrontation, but that confrontation doesn't just lead to condemnation. It's not like, like God just confronts us in those places that we might call sin and then leave us there burdened by that. No, he actually brings comfort in those places and consolation. Somehow this woman declares, come, see the man who's told me everything I've ever done like it's a good thing. Her testimony is the place where others find healing. Somehow Jesus can confront our secret sin, the shadows of our life, and rather than lead with condemnation, he brings freedom. And so church, I would just invite you today, I, I, I have no idea what God and Christ might be seeking out in you, what that looks like, but if there is shame, God wants to join you there to, to speak the words of joy. If there is guilt, God wants to join you there to remind you of the righteousness available in Christ Jesus. If, if there is accusation, God wants to join you there in Jesus to affirm that there has now been a declaration over your life that you are no longer a slave to sin, but that you can be a slave to God in Christ. That is, you can have your whole life devoted to him. And perhaps you're like, this sounds like a bit much. Um, I'm, I don't know if I'm interested in this type of Christianity. Well, let me just say here, are you familiar with a little term called deconstruction? I don't know, it's a little like, maybe it's in your news feed from time to time. Or do any of you have a friend who has said, I, I don't think Christianity is what it's all that it's chalked up to be and I'm gonna walk away. 
Some of my closest friends have said that. And I have this theory, it's not really been tested, so this could be wrong, but part of it, it goes like this, that the church has never really been honest to us about the depths that God will go to seek out true worshipers, that he will confront our hidden sin, that he will call it what it is so that we might be released to freedom. But in the face of confrontation, we shrink back because we're afraid that the words of condemnation will linger but we've never been called forward that true allegiance is a place where freedom and peace and healing happen, that it happens in community, that we can actually face that. And so we, just, like, we deconstruct a version of churchianity, but Jesus is like still standing strong. Like the, he's still saying, here I am in the place of despair to fill you up where you might lack. So I would dare say that Jesus, that worship now is something like reconstruction. And I know that the bulk of the people who call Gateway Home have experienced church hurt. And I'm not dismissing that. I know this is real. But what I want to say to us, invite us into with like the grace of Jesus is to say that there is something to be rebuilt in your life. And that the rebuilding of your faith with Jesus in community, that is worship. The rebuilding of something like faith and trust in the, like the fragility of your trust, there's something like worship there. Jesus is here to fill and fulfill your deepest longings and to do so in himself. So that when he pours out his spirit, so that when he refreshes you, it might not just stop with you, but might like this woman flow through you so that you along with the whole host can declare that indeed this man is the savior of the world.